but for those of you that don't have an idolatry problem, we encourage you to come to the gym and uh, watch watch the Super Bowl with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, yes, we would uh, we would love for you to be there. We'll do like a potluck, bring bring some food. Um, we will also have activity going on in the gym, uh, setting up for the daddy daughter dance. This is going to kind of be hopefully some of a an annual thing where we get together and do some work at the church while the Super Bowl's playing at the same time. So this will be an opportunity for us to fellowship, get a little bit of work done, so on and so forth. So 4 to 4.30 or so, if you want to show up at the gym, bring some food. We'll have a big screen set up, and looking forward to that. So Luke 23, beginning in verse 27. I'll read that in a moment. You know, if you're new to the Bible, the whole the whole proposition of reading the Bible, the way this really opens up, the, the basic presupposition that really changes the whole way the Bible looks is when you believe that God wrote it. When you get to that point, when you realize that, when you believe that God wrote the Bible, the, the whole Bible changes. The whole thing opens up. It becomes this enormous, fractal, kind of unending universe. Uh, it really does change everything. And so if you, don't, if you don't believe or you aren't quite sure you believe that God wrote the Bible... The way to get there, I think, is to study the Bible. And as you read the Bible, I think you'll begin to see this is a very special book. So we talk about divine authorship. We usually mean the idea that God inspired the Bible. And most people in this room believe that God wrote the Bible. But there's another element, another ingredient of divine authorship that most people don't think about. And that's just this idea that the best writer to ever exist, the best writer in the universe wrote the Bible. That God is the best storyteller ever. In fact, it's not really even to be argued that I, standing here before you, and every person in this room is essentially a mass collection of data, right, written by God, both at the genetic and even the molecular level, that we are a collection of language moving through space and time. And that all creation is a collection of language moving through space and time, upheld, the Bible says, by the word of God's power. Thinking of and remembering that God is a really good writer, and, and my goodness, under, understatement of the week, right? But thinking about the fact that God is a really good writer, that he is the world's perfect storyteller, and that that's what he's doing, that's sort of stage two of the Bible opening up to you. When you begin to realize that everything that's happening in the Bible is this unique thing, everything that's happening in life, uh, but, but especially as you read the Bible, think through this idea that, that there's only one writer to have ever been able to have written a true story. Okay, so every other, every other account of a true story, that would just be an account of a story. That would be, if you, if you rewrote the events of some true event, that would not be writing a true story. God's writing a true story. The Bible is a true story that God wrote. The characters literally come to life, right? When you read the Bible that way, you begin to stumble upon, you begin to think about the Bible in a literary way, and not only a literary way, but you begin to think about the Bible that way. And you begin to say, my goodness, these characters that are coming through the page, these characters that God wrote into this story, into this moment in this story, God really is doing a lot in the story that he's writing. 
you know, you, you begin to realize that the characters that surround the cross are not coincidental. There's a reason why the thieves are here and not some other kind of criminal. There's a reason why Barabbas was Barabbas and not some other kind of bad dude. There's a reason why Simon of Cyrene came a thousand miles to carry the cross of Jesus. And you begin to realize that, my goodness, the Lord God has been writing this true story. And these characters, their presence means something. And today we're on to a new character. Last week we looked at Simon of Cyrene. This week we look at a, a character, a group of characters referred to as referred to by Jesus as the daughters of Jerusalem. So look at verse 27 of Luke 23 with me. And there followed him a great multitude of people, and of whom women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? We don't really know who these women are, and I want that to kind of stick as you're thinking through this text. Don't be so quick to assume these women were, for instance, disciples. I don't think that's likely, in fact. Don't be so quick to assume that you know who these women are. We just don't know who these women are. We know that Jesus refers to them as daughters of Jerusalem, and we know why Jesus refers to them as daughters of Jerusalem. He refers to them that way because he is prophesying the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. As he did in previous chapters, we saw Jesus predicting the fall of Jerusalem not that many months ago. In Luke 19, verse 41, Jesus, right after the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, he draws near to the city and sees it and weeps over it, saying, Would that you, even you, O Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they, didn't, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The destruction of Jerusalem is heavy on Jesus' heart, especially mentioned in the book of Luke, by the way. And often Jesus is mindful of this event that will take place in 70 AD when the whole city of Jerusalem will be besieged by the Roman army and there will be suffering unparalleled in the previous experience of the world. And the world was a rough place back then. And the people who saw what happened in Jerusalem said, we've never seen anything like this. So think about this. Jesus is on his way to the cross too exhausted to carry his cross. Women are following behind him, mourning and weeping. And he turns around and tells them, don't weep for me, weep for yourself. Because in about 40, decades, 40 years, he doesn't obviously give them a date, but not too long from now, your whole world's going to crash down. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is predicting a future. Think about this. Jesus says, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus is saying that the siege of Jerusalem will bring such suffering that having and having children would make that suffering even more unbearable. So under normal circumstances, barrenness in the Bible is considered a curse. It, it, all over scripture, you see this, this idea, this inability to carry, a, have a single child is, is a curse. But Jesus is saying that the time will come during the siege of Jerusalem when having children will be such a burden, such a liability, will be such an exponential increaser of suffering in those particular conditions that those women who were unable to have children will be considered blessed, not cursed. Later on, Jesus actually says, uh, just right after that, he says, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Part of the unique suffering that will befall Jerusalem in 70 AD is that the people will be essentially starved to death. They will, they will endure a long and painful death and they will wish that their end would come quickly like a mountain falling on them or to be buried in a landslide rather than what Calvin says, pine away amidst the cruel torments of a lingering destruction. Pine away amidst the cruel torments of a lingering destruction. They're just hoping death would come soon. So Jesus, on his way to the cross, stops and tells these women, don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourself. Because the future is coming when things will be so terrible, you will call those who used to call cursed blessed, and you will long for death to come quickly. So how do we apply what Jesus is saying? What's God's message to us through those words? Well, there are three points of application, political, theological, and personal. that I'll walk you through this morning. First of all, politically. I preached on this very subject a while back in Luke 19 when we got there. I just wanted to remind you, and I'll just remind you again, we have got to remember that nations come and go. We've got to learn to chuckle at the notion of too big to fail. Job says, he makes nations rise and then fall. He builds up some and abandons others. Part of the application to this text is timely and important. And don't think, yeah, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to this country. It won't happen at this time. That's exactly what everybody thinks when it happens to them. Throughout the book of Luke, Jesus warns the people inhabiting this city, you're going to experience a sudden catastrophic tragedy. And he lovingly warns them of that fact. Even more specifically, a, a more specific application would, would go like this. We've got to bear in mind that nations that rise because of their allegiance to God fall when they turn their back on him. Right? We, just need to, we just need to lock that in. Nations which rise because of their allegiance to God crumble when they turn their back on him. In verse 31, Jesus says, if they do these things when the wood is green, how much more so when the wood is dry? What's he mean by that? 
Well, Jesus is the green wood of Jerusalem. He's the life. He's the vitality of that city. He's the vitality of Israel. He's the vitality of Judaism. And that vitality is about to be vanquished. That vitality is about to be formally, officially rejected. And when the vitality is gone in the wood, the wood becomes extraordinarily combustible. Have you ever lived somewhere where there just isn't a lot of rainfall and just driven down the road and just randomly saw a fire on the side of the road? You know, the, the material on the side of the road is that dry that just, just the slightest thing can start a fire anywhere and there's just these little random fires everywhere because everything's that dry? Friends, a society that systematically, progressively, over the period of time, rejects Jesus, who was its vitality in some respects, becomes dry and exceedingly combustible so that it's sort of like that Christmas tree maybe some of you still have up in your house. You know, (laughs) it's gone. Well, How did it go so quick, they'll say? How did the nation crumble so quickly? How did it all go down so fast? It rejected its vitality. It rejected the thing that kept the life going in it. And this has happened throughout history, and we shouldn't think we're above it. It's just kind of how history goes. So that's the political application. Let's talk about the biblical and theological application. I think it would be fair to have a sign above my head that flashed Bible nerd mode. Every once in a while, I will, just because I think it's important, just go all out Bible nerd and just indulge my inner desires, my inner Bible nerd. And, and I'm going to do that now. There's, there's, a, there's a theological application that I think is just compelling and captivating here. And you can imagine the Bible nerd sign flashing above my head if you want to. This moment where Jesus is looking at the daughters of Jerusalem, telling them that they will soon be rejected is a sort of tip of the iceberg moment that we would later refer to as the age of the Gentiles. That season of church history where the centerpiece of God's religion pivots away from Israel and to the nations. This, this forecasting of the destruction of Jerusalem is a forecasting of the removal of Jerusalem as the centerpiece of God's covenant. And that the establishment of God's covenant, not in a place or in an ethnicity, but in the whole world, in the nations, and in the hearts of those who would be saved. So we know that for sure. We know Jesus is essentially making the case, as he did in Luke 19, you did not know the day of your visitation, and therefore calamity will fall upon you. A calamity from which, by the way, Israel would not recover until 1948. Uh, Never trust me on dates, by the way. Somewhere around there. Not recover until, by the way, political Israel is established not because of the strength of Israel, but because of the strength of the West, right? It's, it's, It's established because of Western strength, right? So, so this is Jesus essentially saying what Paul will make clear in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that 
this whole covenant thing used to be centered around being a Jew. And it's not going to be centered around being a Jew anymore. Not, not an ethnic Jew. Picture this. Try to make more sense of this. Why does Jesus use the phrase daughters of Jerusalem in particular? So picture this. Small town. Everybody goes to the elementary. Same elementary school. Same junior high. Same high school together. In junior high, the, this boy is pretty dorky. And all the popular girls think he's lame. Then in late high school, he becomes a man among men. Now all the popular girls like him. The same ones that made fun of him in junior high. The dance is coming up, and he can ask any of the popular girls he wants, and he would have a yes. But instead he goes to the new girl, a girl who just transferred in, maybe a girl of a completely different race, a different socioeconomic class. And he asks her to the dance, and they spend the whole night having fun in front of all the mean girls. Okay, That's the high school dance version of the pivot that takes place from an ethnocentric religion in the Old Covenant to a heart-centered religion in the New Covenant. That's when Jesus is talking to these women as the daughters of Jerusalem, there's a bit of a tinge of sorority girl in that particular phrase. Uh, This phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, only appears in one other place in Scripture, it appears multiple times in that book, and that book is the Song of Solomon. It is interesting when you read the book of Song of Solomon that the daughters of Jerusalem are always the bridesmaids and never the bride. They're the girls who watch on the sidelines as the king groom sweeps in and marries the country girl, the Shulamite, the girl who is dark but lovely, the wild girl. The girl from the wilderness. The daughters of Jerusalem stand by and watch the king marry the unexpected bride. The the bride from the outside of the royal court. So repeatedly in Song of Solomon, the daughters of Jerusalem are used as sort of the, the kind of the mean girl's foil. Kind of the sorority girl's thing. Essentially the bride, the Shulamite, the, the, the chosen girl, she keeps saying to the daughters of Jerusalem... Oh my goodness, how much he loves me. Oh my goodness, how much he loves me. You know, it's this, you're witnessing, they're they're here to witness this and also to be stirred to jealousy over this. So Jesus' usage of daughters of Jerusalem may be tied right back to Song of Solomon and may be Jesus saying, a love story is taking place right before your very eyes and you ain't she. Right? That, that may be what he's doing here. I can't say for sure that that reference that Jesus makes as daughters of Jerusalem is back to Song of Solomon. I can say that's the only other place it appears in Scripture. And the underlying point is sound. That this is a pivoting away from an ethnocentric sorority girls kept virgins in the royal court. And Jesus is going to the nations. Something that will take place over the next ten chapters of the book of Acts. Jesus is saying, I choose the one you would not expect me to choose. Now, I want to show you just real quickly before I turn the Bible nerd sign off. Just, I want you to hear a couple passages of scripture that describe this very thing. 
Because there's a personal application to this whole idea that these people that were inevitably gods wind up not being. There's a personal application to that we'll make here in a moment. So Romans 9, 22 through 25, Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then Paul quotes from Hosea, which is also a love story, right? And he says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And she who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Paul progresses in his argument throughout chapter 9, goes into Romans chapter 10 and says this, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, just in case this is still more murky than it needs to be, you have to understand that when Jerusalem is destroyed, the whole system of Old Testament worship is destroyed with it. Jerusalem is the centerpiece of that whole approach to worship that the Old Testament prescribes. Because Jesus had fulfilled all of that, the, the shadow uh, had been replaced by the substance, and it was a violent replacement. 1 Peter 2.10, probably a familiar passage to you. Listen to it from this perspective of Jesus walking past the sorority girls and asking the unknown girl, maybe of a different race, socioeconomic, maybe even not that good looking, asking her out. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Not, not some of God, now you are God's people. God chose you. You were not even a people, now you have his last name. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Jesus is looking at this scene from very different eyes than we are. He's looking at this tragedy of the daughters of Jerusalem left at the altar without a groom because they would not believe the day of their visitation. He's seeing the daughters of Jerusalem as representative of what John describes as he came into his own and his own received him not. And now the judgment is cast. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it will be terrible. Genuinely terrible. Now, a couple of things. Romans 11, Paul continues, makes it clear that the rejection of Israel isn't full or final. The rejection of the Jews is not full or final. It is literally zero warrant at all whatsoever to use this in any way that would be anti-Semitic, et cetera, and so on, so on and so forth. Hopefully you know better, but I feel like I have to state that because this very argument I've used 
has been used by those who want to look for reason to be anti-Semitic. Jews continued to be saved after Jesus said this. They will continue to be saved. And ultimately, they will be brought in in a miraculous revival kind of sense. There will be a miraculous bringing in of many, many, many ethnic Jews one day. And Paul says, and boy, that's going to be amazing for the whole world when that takes place. There should be no warrant in what I just described for boasting. Paul actually says, if God cut off the natural branches, you ought to be humble. Because how much easier would it be for him to cut off the grafted branches? All right, we can turn off the Bible nerd sign. What does this text say to us personally? I've got a couple of personal points of application I want to walk you through. The first one is pretty directly tied to what we just said. This is the end of any kind of ethnic entitlement. And you may think, well, I don't really think I need to know about that. I mean, I I wasn't trusting in God to save me because of my ethnicity. I've been harping on this point for several weeks now, and I'll keep it up. Some of you are at the age where you need to make sure you understand that God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And that your parents' faith isn't enough. That would be the very same thing as an ethnic sense of entitlement. To think that somehow you're automatically in because your parents are in is the same logic that you would say, because I am born in a garage, I am a car. I don't know if anyone here was born in a garage. Hope not. But you would not be a car. And being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. So one of the basic points that this text brings home is just the reminder, God has no grandchildren. Everybody in this room, if they will have a relationship with God, must have their own personal conversion experience whereby God goes into their life and changes their heart. There is no testimony in here that had a plus one included. Right? Sometimes you get invited to a party and you get a plus one, you get to take somebody with you. Nobody here is going to get to heaven on a plus one. Everybody here must have their personal experience of conversion with Jesus. Number two, Christ is the life in everything. Christ is the life in everything. Any good thing you love will be dead and eventually burn unless Christ is the life inside of it. Christ is the difference between a live marriage and a dead marriage, between a live budget and a dead budget, between a live job and a dead job, between a live healthy body and a dead healthy body. Christ is the difference. Christ is the life in every good thing. When he's taken out, the thing you have is no longer good. If Christ isn't at the center, then whatever you have is firewood. Thankfully, Jesus allows us to sanctify things unto him so we can actually take things that are dead to Jesus and say, would you be the green inside this old piece of wood? Would you bring this old marriage to life? Would you bring this old heart to life? Would you bring this old job to life? I bring it to you. Would you be the life inside of that thing? Boy, a lot changes when that 
happens. This also shows us the limitation of emotion in religion. Boy, I'm not, I don't, you won't hear me say that very often. I think emotion is very important in our relationship with God. I think affections are very important in our relationship with God. But this is one of those texts where I should say it the way I just said it. This does show us the limitations of emotion in religion. Here's what I mean. You've got these women following behind Jesus, mourning and crying, and they really don't understand what's happening. Let me say it this way. Feeling sad that Jesus died is not the same as being saved by his death. Our emotional response to the crucifixion is not unimportant, but it's definitely not a cause of conversion. I think that this may be helpful to two groups of people. One, who feel bad that they don't feel bad. I don't want to let you off the hook entirely. You should probably address your non-emotional self as I'm trying to address mine. But emotions are definitely not in the driver's seat in a salvific, saving way. These people had plenty of emotions. These, these people had, had the feels a hundred times, right? They, they were all up there with the feels. But they weren't really on board. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what was happening. They saw something tragic and they knew to be sad. But that's not the same thing as being converted from death into life. Number four. We're, gonna, we're progressing into more painful ones, so just to warn you. Who do you pity? Just generally speaking, I find that uh, pity and judgment are kind of two sides of the same coin. When we're in a good mood, we pity, and when we're in a bad mood, we judge. When we're feeling gracious, we pity. When we're feeling not gracious, we judge. So just let me just ask it this way. Who do you look down on? And don't give me the Bible answer. Those who don't have Jesus. Really, like, just, just be honest for a minute. Who, who do you look down on? Like, let's just, just, just take it in for a second. Who do you look down on? Who do you judge? Who do you have pity on? The poor? The less intelligent? The obese? The ugly? The single? The liberal? Who do you look down on and judge? When you're at your worst, you judge them. When you're at your best, you pity them. Who do you weep for, figuratively speaking? And here's why I ask that. Whatever those people that you pity slash judge lack, that's a pretty good indicator of what you love. Right? So, so as you're going through your life this week, you're going to run into some people. I mean, I think I pity and judge bad driving. Right? I mean, I, I think there are many things like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pity or, and or judge multiple times this week. And what I'm really saying when I dial it all down is that person lacks what I think is important. That person lacks what I love. Why are they really crying? Why are they really mourning? I, I, I'm not going to venture a guess. Only to say I don't think Jesus is really recognizing their mourning and their crying as legitimate. I think they looked at him and they saw someone who lacked things they really loved. 
like safety and security and comfort and control and reputation and life. I think that's where the pity was coming from. Sometimes we adopt causes as a means of feeling superior or holding, hiding our sin. Sometimes pity is a really good camouflage. You know, wild animals, they try to hide in the brush that looks the most like them. They've learned that over time. This is the right tree for me to hide by. You know, I think sinners tend to hide in proportionality. In other words, it's, it's not too difficult to find someone who's a more gross version of us, a, a grosser sinner than us, and then to really pity them and to judge them and kind of stand next to, the, stand next to them. If you, if you want to look short, stand next to my son. If you want to look skinny, stand next to me. You know, the, we, we use proportionality as a camouflage to hide what's going on in us. And this is very common. You'll see people that really just are centered around some terrible, terrible sin. And it could be, you know, hiding, not dealing with their own thing. It's really easy to weep for something that looks terrible. It's really easy to weep for something that outwardly looks gruesome and horrific. But I just want to ask this question. When was the last time you wept for yourself? And I don't mean that in a self-pity way. Here's explicitly what I mean. Why were they weeping? They were mourners. That's what they're doing. They're mourning. They're mourning. Their weeping was mourning. So let me ask it this way. When was the last time you mourned over your sin? Over your sin. Not the state of the world. Not the state of someone else. Not the need of someone else. When was the last time you really saw it? You really saw it. And thought, oh my goodness. Woe is me, for I've come become undone. When, when, when have you mourned over how bad it is? Over how bad it could be? You know, this morning I was sitting looking at my calendar and I saw that 51 weeks ago today, I preached my first sermon here of 2017. First sermon here, and I think I preached a couple times before that, maybe once or twice. But since all of this has gone down, that was my first Sunday here. And the text for that week, if I'm remembering correctly, was Luke 18, 8 through 14. Let me read that to you. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I don't know if that's pity or judgment. Kind of has that in-between feel. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Honestly, sometimes it's just fitting to take a moment and realize how undone and doomed for judgment you would be. If Christ did not step in and save you. 
to take a moment and really feel how terrible hell would be if you were not, how, how deserving hell would be and how terrible hell would be if Jesus did not save you. Jesus is saying to these women, you really ought to mourn for yourself because your fate is tied in with rejecting me. And I don't think it's something we do enough to just take a moment and say, I have so much I need to be forgiven for. So much that grieves the heart of God. I'm going to take a step away from all of my causes, all, all my ambitions, and just get real for a moment and do what it says in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. James 4, 1 through 10, not a popular passage for preaching. It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your adulterous, on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that God says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So this is Jesus saying, you know, I'm going to be okay. Because I listened to the Father. I'm obeying the Father. I know that right now it looks like I'm a fool and a tragic radical, but don't weep for me. I'm going to be okay. You ought to weep for disobedience. You ought to weep for the disobedient, including yourself. If you're going to be sad, be sad over how easy it is to look at the obedient and say, well, that's a terrible decision. And look at the disobedient and say, well, they're, they're doing okay. They're secure. To look at the opportunities God has set before us to either obey or disobey and to realize that many times we have counted the cost and said it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to obey. Things are going to be a lot easier if I step away and do this my own way. To understand that 
If your heart's anything like my heart, you may have been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years and still take credit for almost every good thing that happens to you. And still look at those who don't have good things happening to them and figure out how it must have been something they did wrong. Well, there's another woman present here, probably not part of this group, Jesus' mother. And we know, of course, that she would have been weeping as well. John tells us that she stayed near the cross. That she was mourning, obviously, as she watched her son be crucified. At the very beginning of the book of Luke, she's got tears of joy in her eyes. And I want you to hear what she says. This is when she just found out that she, this lowly person who no one would ever look at as anything, had been chosen by God. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. How about you? Are you hungry or full? Are you rich or poor? Are you really, really secure because of your awesome life plan? Or are you depending every day on the Savior? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. How does Jesus prescribe this hard kind of sad way forward. How does he say that that's going to lead to happiness? Because Jesus walked it in perfect righteousness all the way to the cross and offered up himself on your behalf. This mourning that Jesus is prescribing, this weeping over our own state, it's all supposed to lead to joy, of course, but it's a joy rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. Not in what you've done. And sometimes we just need to be reminded how tenuous our little plan is apart from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
going out into the nations, going into Europe and into Africa and into Asia and into South America, to North America, going into the into the wider world where pretty much you met people who worship trees and all sorts of other things you abhor and you preach peace through Jesus and through those whom Jesus sent. You reached out and picked those who were improbable, unworthy. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, that we would just be so happy to be unworthy, happy to be weak, happy to be scorned at by the world, happy to be unwise and unstrong in the eyes of the world, but to be yours, to be yours. We're yours. We will never be moved. Lord, honor your word today in a way that is far beyond what it would look like to honor this particular message. Save, save people, humble people, sanctify people, redeem people, Lord. As we partake in this table, Father, pray that we would come with humble hearts, open to our absolute need for you. We just that would just that would just be thunderously true in our hearts, Lord. There would that that truth would be central. Or as we come, let us come with an appetite. Let us be hungry for your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.